welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Dave Jenkinson continues our series on the Apostle Paul's letters to the church at Corinth. Today, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And now, here's Dave. So good to be with you all here today, either in the building or on Zoom. Your presence makes this real and effective. And uh, let's just take a moment to further pray. Lord, we pause to say thank you again for your Holy Spirit who draws us together, who brings our attention to your word, reminds us again that you have a plan for each one of us. We thank you for this study in 1 Corinthians, how very practical for this day and age. We thank you for the music ministry already and for the reminders from uh, the little animal friends that reminds us again that you love us and you care for each one. Lord, come to us for now, we pray. We invite you to open our hearts and our ears and we give you our thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone has once said that the word of God is clear. Um, anything out of context is a pretext. And the chapter that we're looking at today, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, must be viewed in the context of its position. Remember that Paul was writing to a very cosmopolitan church. This is no rural church out in the country. This is a city church composed of Greek, Jewish, and even some Romans. Uh, it was founded by Paul himself in Acts chapter 18. And the, but the church was struggling, struggling with divisions, lack of unity, discipline or lack thereof, disputes, and yes, defilement of the world. And so the first six chapters, he deals with that topic. If you haven't already read through, I encourage you to do so. Chapters 7 through 15 deal with the questions that Paul had been asked. Things like, what about celibacy? What about singleness? What about the communion? What's that all about? What about spiritual gifts? They were a church that emphasized the miraculous gifts, and uh, Paul sets the gifts in order. And, of course, even talks about church order and uh, public meetings, resurrection. I love the way Paul gets to his final point, though. In chapter 15, 16, he kind of comes to his real reason for writing, and that's to remind the folks to make good on their promise, to give a gift for those who were in Jerusalem experiencing famine. So he sort of leaves that whole issue of his uh, his desire for them to come to uh, to give financially as a sort of aside, and he kind of builds towards that. Let's read it again together, shall we? Reading 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13. Moreover, brothers, I'm not inclined that you should be ignorant of the fact that our ancestors walked beneath the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all did eat the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual beverage. They drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were scattered in the desert. Now, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after worthless things, as they also set their heart on. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to sport. Exodus 32.6. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 died. Numbers 25.9. Nor let us test Christ, as some of them also tested, and were be destroyed by the serpents. Numbers 21.6. Nor grumble, as some of them also grumbled and were destroyed by this destroyer. Numbers 14, 29. Now, all these things happened to them as an analogy or pattern, and they were written for our warning upon whom the ends of the time and of the world have arrived. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands beware. Let him take heed, lest he fall flat on his face. No temptation that you have received, except such as is common to mankind. But God is trustworthy. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation also lighten the ship that you might be able to make a quick exit. Well, we certainly live in interesting times. There's much today in the current pandemic to suggest that we seem to be ripe for the return of Jesus. The passage we have just read was written for you as well as for the Corinthians. It's stuck right in the very center of this Paul's letter. And it needs to be repeated today. Now, you remember that the church to whom he was writing had a problem with knowledge. You see, there was one group that elevated wisdom and knowledge. And, of course, there was the uh, satiric wisdom of the Greeks and the mystery religions. And Paul was saying, no, let your let your knowledge be guided in fact, undercurrent by love. You need to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. One famous preacher used to say, some Christians grow and other Christians just seem to swell. Knowledge is power, but it must be used in love. And love must also be controlled by knowledge. These believers had knowledge, but they were not using their knowledge in love. Instead of building up the family, the strong Christians were only puffing themselves up. And it's here that love just needs to enter the picture. Love builds up and puts others first. Just like the hot cross bun, whose tastiness is linked to the bread and the raisins mixed throughout. Both are needed to make excellent dessert. Knowledge, too, needs to be mixed with love. Otherwise, the saints will end up with simply big heads instead of enlarged hearts. And we have three places, very quickly, that we can say this passage of Scripture is for us in this particular day. First Corinthians 9, verse 10 says... Does he say it for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. And then Romans fifteen four: for whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning. Some people would say, well, this is just a letter for the people of Corinth of their day. Not so. This letter is for us in our day. And then again, as we look into the scripture, the very passage that we have already read Verse 6, now these things were for our examples. An expert swimmer taught college men how to swim and dive. One night he just couldn't sleep, so he decided to go to the swimming pool and have a swim. He hoped the exercise would help him with his sleeplessness. He said, I I didn't put the lights on. I knew every inch of that pool. So that night I began with my first thing, my diving pose. I stood silent and still 
ready to dive and pierce into the still water. And as I stood above, the moonlight shone through the glass roof. And in the dim, dim of that moonlight, my body's shadow extended to the far end of the wall. At that moment, I could see that my body and arms made the perfect sign of the cross. Now, I cannot explain why I did not continue my dive. I had no premonition of danger of any kind. And as I stood looking at the shadow of the cross, I began to think of the cross of Christ and its meaning. Now, I was not a Christian. And I found myself repeating the words of a hymn. Why are these hymns so important? Because they're meant to convey a message. And this gentleman found himself repeating these words. He died that I might be forgiven. As I stood there with these thoughts circling in my head, I came to observe more closely the shadow on the pool. It was at this moment I noticed something seemed to be wrong. I went over to the light switch and flipped on the light. Someone had actually drained the pool without my knowledge. Had I dove in, I would have surely broken my neck and died. And at that very moment, I realized God had indeed protected me. I knew then that he wanted me to trust him fully and turn my life over to him. I did so, and I've never looked back. We can all say, we who know him, we've had similar such experiences with the Lord of glory. This man came to faith, and he came to faith because of a supernatural revelation. And the word of God is important in our lives, but it must be supernaturally unveiled to us by the Holy Spirit. Just as a mustard seed has no power in the chemistry of that seed, it must have the supernatural work of God to cause that seed to germinate. Now, this is a time for gardens. And most of us who plant gardens don't think that those seeds in themselves have the power, nor is it the sunshine, nor is it the rain. But there's something supernatural goes on to cause that seed to germinate. And the same is true with God's word. God's word, it says in scripture, builds faith. But something supernatural must include it in that word, and that is the spirit of the living God. The people of that Paul was writing to in Corinth Many of them came from a Jewish heritage. Many of them had a common experience. But a common experience does not equate to being accepted and approved by God. And that's what Paul was trying to say in this chapter, chapter 10. Paul's speaking to the church, and he knows that there is in that church a group of believers, disciples who are living out their faith because they indeed had turned themselves over to Jesus. He also knew there were children possibly listening who needed to come to faith in Jesus. And there were those who were um, thought they were believers, but weren't real sure because their failures and their continuous addictions and sinful happens, uh, actions convinced them that they were just not yet moved from darkness into light, from death to life, or from uh, determination into liberty. Then there were those who were fake Christians, fake news Christians. Yep, they were there. Fake news was way back in the first century. And like an Ananias and Sapphira of Acts chapter 5 and Simon Magus of Acts chapter 8 fame, many were attracted to the family of God simply because they seemed to like the miracles and the power and the joy, the community, the sense of belonging. But Paul now takes a page from history and says, now look at the nation of Israel, what they had. 
Did their common experience bring them into the promised land? Well, let's look at it. And he gives a number of examples. They were all under the cloud. In Exodus 13, 21, the Lord went before them by a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night a pillar of fire. Those of us who live in the north know what a wall of fire can do. The cloud by day seems to suggest that it was the same pillar only seen during the daytime. And those of us who lived here know very well Victoria Day weekend in 2012. A large white cloud could be seen to our west. We could smell and see it. It wasn't God's cloud. Well, maybe it was in the sense that God is in charge of all clouds. But Timmons Fire 9 had grown to 40,000 hectares and was creating some significant winds and spokes and smoke. So during that Saturday, the fire was racing towards Timmons. We asked for prayer, even on our Facebook page. And people around the world were praying. And we thank you around the world for those who prayed. Because God answered, not with rain, but with wind. Yes, he created a very substantial inflow from the northeast to blow the fire back upon itself. The fire literally consumed itself. The fire, the wind was so strong that day that that green van that you see me driving around with occasionally has a scar from that very moment when a grocery cart picked up the wind and rammed right into me. Maybe somebody wasn't too happy with the fact people were praying. We don't know. That Sunday, we thought the worst was over. That is until a second fire began right at the bottom of Ray Hill. Situated beneath five intersecting hydro lines, this fire blazed up and was actually caught on Facebook and the news spread that South Porcupine was in trouble. Order of evacuation was a real possibility. Remember talking to our neighbor, having a sidewalk prayer meeting right there in front of our homes. And as we smelled the smell of burnt wood, we prayed the firefighters battling the blaze would soon get it under control. For the first time that night in 29 years, Becky and I slept with our emergency bags packed, ready for the phone call for immediate evacuation. Perhaps you were doing the same. We also asked for prayer from around the world again. Next day, a small rainstorm arrived to dampen the fire along with local firefighters, volunteers. The battle was brought under control through forestry bombers and city firefighters, fire trucks, but much prayer. And that day, the fire was snuffed out. While Paul reminds the believers in Corinth, their behavior must be different. They followed the cloud. They must live under it. And it's not enough to say that one's great-grand-grand-grand-great-great-grand-grandfather was one who walked out from Egypt. Paul's to establish that we all have a common blessing, but that does not equate with the faith that saves. So he says, all pass through the sea. And you remember that the sea was represented in the New Testament, that action of going across the sea with the waters on either side as baptism. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36, the gentleman from Ethiopia said, where there is water, what does hinder me from being baptized? And of course, Philip challenges him and says, if you believe, you may. Paul challenged believers in Acts chapter 19. Well, they were, were they believers? He says, he came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And then he went on to explain the gospel. 
And when they heard this, they believed and re- were rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so baptism is not what saves. For all of you who have been baptized into Christ, that is who saves and have clothed yourselves with him. All ate the same spiritual food and drink. You remember they ate the bread of manna, the manna from heaven. They, uh, they all drank of the rock that followed him. Exodus 15, uh, 17, 5 through 7. And it says in verse 5, most of these God was not pleased. Well, actually, it was all those over the age 20. In Numbers 14, 29, and in Joshua 5 and 4, it says all the people that came out of Egypt that were males, even the men of war, died in the wilderness by the way. So what were they doing during those 40 years of wilderness wanderings? They were having mass funerals. Must have been a very discouraging time. But the implication is this, that being baptized, breaking bread, this is not the guarantee of eternal life. Rather, it is the knowledge and the rebirth that is the guarantee. Rebirth in Jesus that is the guarantee. He says in Hebrews 3.19 and 4.10 of Hebrews, For he who has entered his rest has ceased from his works as God did from his. You see, we can confuse this salvation that we have. And we can consider that the salvation we have is all about works when Paul is very clear in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of works, lest any man should boast. He then goes on to say, we all have common temptations. In the next few minutes, I'd like to look at a few of those temptations. Nor lust as they lusted, in verse 6. In Numbers 11, 4, it says the mixed multitude were yielding to intense lust. So the children of Israel wept again and said, who will give us the meat? We remember the fish that we ate and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But you say, we we as believers, we don't lust. Well, James 4, verse 1 says, where do the wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from the desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Lord Jesus himself said in Matthew five twenty eight, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. We're not to be idolaters. Idolatry in our day? Surely that's not happening. Well, What is the first command? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And that is the command that supersedes all others. And then he says, and you love your neighbors as yourselves. And so which one amongst us has not set something in front of that that command? It could be our job. It could be our workplace. could be our our pleasures. could be our... Uh, indulgence, our restfulness. It could be our love of vacations. Any one of those things. It could be our money. It could be our comfort, our lack of conflict. Any one of those things can become an idol in the hearts and minds of a believer in this generation. Then number three, not commit sexual immorality. Sexual immorality continues to be a problem in the church of God today. Did you know that one half of every evangelical marriage will end in divorce? This is not preaching that it should end. It should not. 
But you and I know numerous couples that were happily married and seemed to have everything together and are now part of these statistics. Number four, not tempt Christ, as some did, Numbers 21, 6 through 9. And this passage is rather interesting passage because the Lord himself sent fiery serpents among the people who bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. So Moses prayed for the people when they repented and the Lord said, make that bronze serpent, set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who's bitten when he looks at it shall be saved, shall live. I remember a friend of mine, I was talking to him about salvation And he said, did you know, Dave, I got saved by my good looks? And I said, what? Your good looks? He wasn't that great a looking guy. He says, yeah. He says, I kept having good looks at the Lord Jesus. I kept looking at him on the cross. I kept looking at him in his word. I kept looking at him in all my inadequacies. And as I kept looking at him, I realized that I needed him. I needed a savior. I needed the Lord Jesus. Now, the fifth thing Paul mentions is something that you and I are never prone to do. Verse 10, neither complain. We never complain, do we? Well, yes, we do. Some of us complain in the morning because it's too bright if it's a sunny day. Or if it's too cloudy, we complain that it's too dark. We complain in the summer that it's too hot, and in the winter we complain that it's too cold. Yes, we are a nation of complainers. We love to talk about the weather, but how can you talk about the weather and still not talk, be a complainer? Now, why do we bring these things up to our to your attention? They warn us. They warn us that these things are not to be happening in the church of God. They warn us to give us an example of how not to do it. They become an admonition or a rebuke, and they also keep us from pride. In verse 12, let therefore let him who thinks he stands beware lest he take heed and fall flat on his face. I remember one time patting my back and saying, after a sermon, this is for all those preachers out there. Well, that was a good sermon. And I've I, I, I been struggling that week, so that was more of a thankfulness. But then again, maybe there was a little bit of pride there. Probably was. As I stepped down off the, the step from the podium, just so happened that step was not attached. And that step went one way, and I went the other way. My feet went straight up in the air. My bottom came down with a whack on the floor. And the entire audience was uh, chagrined, to say the least. They wondered if I'd broken my back. No. <laughs> the Lord spoke to my heart. He says, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. And so we who share God's word with you need to set the better example need to set a good example, but we can only do so with the grace of the Lord Jesus and the willingness to hear his voice. This common experience of temptation he describes in verses 13. It's a common experience because every believer gets to experience temptation. Jesus was tempted. Peter was tempted. Paul was tempted. Martin Luther said when he was tempted and the devil came knocking at the door of his heart, you know what he did? He just said, when the devil said, who lives here? He sent the Lord Jesus to the door. And the Lord Jesus says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he has moved out. Now I live here. And the devil seeing the nail prints in his hands and the pierced side takes flight immediately. 
It's a common experience. It also reminds us that God is faithful, for God is faithful. Uh, the, the prayer warrior Augustine came face to face with a woman who had been his evil genius for many months, having dragged him deeper and deeper into sin. When he passed by her, she said, Augustine, do you not know me? See, it is I. And he looked at it for a moment, knowing that she no longer held him in her evil spell, replied, ah, but it is not I. Second Corinthians 5.17 makes it clear. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed through. Behold, the new has come. Are you that new creation? You see, Paul was writing to a people who were used to obeying the law, the religious and they were used to going through ordinances and formality. But the heart can be very, very far removed in a life of a religious person. I'm speaking truth because that's my heart before I came face to face with Jesus. Maybe your heart too. Nevertheless, he says, he assures us that we will not be tempted above that which we are able. Like the cardboard box, it says, tested to so many pounds, so too the Lord Jesus knows how much you can be tested. Now, you don't want to put as much as you possibly can to see if you can break. And some people do that, even as Christians. Oh, I can I can do this. I've got liberty. I can go ahead and do this and abuse my body and take drugs and take various other chemicals. I can, I can abuse myself. Because, well, I, I have the liberty of Christ. And that's one of the issues that Paul was dealing with, with the church of Corinth. But he reminds the Christian that we're to live differently. That in fact, three times, it's very significant that Paul describes the believer three times, twice in 1 Corinthians and once in 2 Corinthians, as the temple of the living God. But do you not know that your body is the temple of the living God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And so... We are to live for the Lord Jesus. And he makes a way of escape. John Burrow, the naturalist, says that when a hawk is attacked by crows, what does it do? It just soars higher and higher until the others cannot fly as high. How high are you flying during this time? Are you reading God's word? Are you spending time with the Lord? Are you seeking to see him in every moment of the day? Because he wants it. He sees you and he wants to fellowship with you throughout the day. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How do we beat temptation? First of all, the flesh. Very briefly, the Lord Jesus, when confronted with the temptation of the flesh, quotes that passage from the Old Testament, and it's and it's found in Matthew 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone. Your t- daily time with God and meditating on God's word is going to make a difference with those daily temptations. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 as well. And 2 Peter 1, 4, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises that you might be partakers of the divine nature. Secondly, we are tempted by the world. The Lord Jesus was brought to that high temple, or that high pinnacle of the temple. Fame would have been instant had he jumped as instructed by Satan. Sometimes we're told the same, go for it, jump. God will catch you, name it and claim it. But that's not the way of God. The Lord Jesus would say, I only do what the Lord, my father, has said to me to do. 
There's the third temptation, and that was the direct temptation to worship the devil. Some people, I'm told, in the in the um, acting world and in the world of music, have actually signed off a contract. They would give their souls to the devil if they would get all instant fame, and some of them have received instant fame. But what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And so we have to have our external clothing. Our external clothing must be without uh, hindrance, without with light. It must be unencumbered. When we're born again, our lips, our heart, our hands, our eyes, our ears, our intellect, our feet, our emotions now belong to him. And when he says go, we go. And when he urges us to keep a loose hand on our possessions, for they will but be destroyed one day. And the only value that we can do for the kingdom of God is to win others for Jesus Christ. Our shoes are shod with the preparation of the gospel. Our second clothing is humility. What is that elusive spiritual quality? Humility is described as having much gift, resources, and talents, but burying these in order that the Lord might get the glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourself with humility. And our third clothing for this grand race of life is our righteous deeds. The believer's race is full of good and wholesome deeds, which inspire others to godly living. Righteous deeds are described in Revelations 19.8. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The writer had lost his health, and his right hand was now paralyzed. right side was now paralyzed. His money had all been spent. His creditors were threatening to imprison him. He was so disheartened by these tragic experiences that he had almost lost faith. He despaired, and in this great time of trial, something happened. During a period of less than a month, page after page of music flowed from this musician. And as a result of that great trial, one of the world's finest works was composed. Who was that? What was that piece? It was George Frederick Handel, the composer, and the piece was the Messiah. How many of us have thrilled to the Hallelujah Chorus? And it came out of a great period of trial. I look around right now, and I see an empty church. Well, not quite empty. Thank you for being here. But there is a world that needs Jesus. And that world is going to come to faith in him. And I'm praying for a great revival and a great new day when God will bring people not only into a building, but into his building, the church of God. You see, we can get caught up in a building when really he wants to be caught up with building for him. May we do so. This writer, this writer, George Frederick Handel, at the conclusion of his life, Described when they said, what was going on during that time when you were writing? He said, it was as if the hand of God had come down and was using me. Don't you want to be a part of God's great work? May God bless us as we move forward. Temptation, yes, we will be tempted. But let us move forward. And let us move forward not in the knowledge that he wants us to get beyond the temptation to where we are simply his servants and looking to him rather than looking to self in this great struggle that we sometimes do. May God bless us as we lose lose ourselves in Jesus and we serve him for the kingdom.
As we go out, Father, may we come to you, and uh, those who are thirsty, may we come and drink of the life that you give. We pray for uh, our community and our church and those around us that they too might come to you and will experience this joy that you give and that you offer to those who are needy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.